I'm Arthur. And I'm Susan. This is the Parent Talk Podcast. Managing the challenges of daily parenting. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Naturopedic, the nation's most trusted source of organic and healthy sleep products for your children. You can visit them at naturopedic.com. That's naturopedic.com. Welcome back to Parent Talk. Susan and I are very excited about a very, very special guest. He's a good friend that makes it special, but his interests, I think, are at the core of what every parent cares about. His name is Dr. Andy Garner, pediatrician with me in Cleveland, Ohio. Andy is an interesting mix of someone who actually practices pediatrics and also a developmental neuroscientist. So what does that mean? He's had a research deep interest in what can we learn about how the brain works to help parents help their children's brains in a way that allows them to flourish as they grow up and enter the world. And he's not just studied it, he practices it. He's published a book about it, published by the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's called Thinking Developmentally, Nurturing Wellness in Childhood to Promote Lifelong Health. Now he's going to bring that message to parents through Parent Talk. We're really excited to have you here, Andy. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I always enjoy talking to you. So we're going to start off talking about how the brain development impacts a child's life through the lens of what's called relational health. And maybe, Andy, you can set the stage for us about your interest in brain development, how it impacts a human life, and what relational health is. Sure. Well, I I do think I probably see things in a unique way um, because I've always had this interest in understanding what the elements are of the environment, the ecology, sort of the, the milieu that children grow up in. What are the elements that sort of promote brain growth and what are the uh, elements that sort of hinder brain development? Because I always tend to see child development and child behavior as being that manifestation of what the brain's doing. For a long time, because I'm in medicine (laughs) and because medicine is a deficits-based model, we've focused a lot on what goes wrong. (laughs) What are the things in the environment that are not helpful, that end up leading to bad outcomes? And so that's where this idea of toxic stress came from, that if there's always a lot of adversity, there's always a lot of the biology being in survival mode that impacts brain development. And the simplest way to think about it is the brain's like a muscle. The parts that you use get stronger over time. So if we are always strengthening fear, 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 then the brain's prepared for fear. But we're not really prepared for learning and, and for interacting with others. And we could have a whole other talk about toxic stress. And, and it's an important concept because it helps us understand how significant adversities in childhood can sort of change who we are. You know, not only at a behavioral level, but sort of the cellular molecular level, it can change who we are. But that's really a deficits-based model. It's sort of like the rest of medicine. We're, we're all about what went wrong with you. And, and I think that what we really want to focus on today is what's strong with you? How can we get things right? How, how can we optimize brain development and child development? And that's where it really becomes interesting because we're learning a lot more that just as adversity become biologically embedded, so can nurturing relationships and positive child experiences can also become biologically embedded and really influence how the brain develops and how kids learn and kids are healthy in the long run. So the focus is, like you mentioned, this idea of relational health. What it really comes down to is the capacity to develop and maintain safe, stable, and nurturing relationships. And so like any other relationship, that's a two-way street, right? So we need to have children 
being prepared to interact in, in a development appropriate manner with caregivers. And I, I tend to use the word caregivers more than parents because we'd always assume it's a parent and usually is a parent, but it doesn't have to be a parent. It can be a coach or a teacher or another adult figure that can play an important role in a child's life. So if we see relational health as being a capacity that reflects some core skills um, that not only allow us to build and maintain relationships, but those same core skills are what children need to be resilient in the face of adversity. And so that is what my main interest is, is not only is relational health important for uh, us building relationships, it's sort of, a, I like to say that relational health begins and ends with safe, stable, nurturing relationships. So if, if a child has a safe, stable, nurturing relationship, they'll build skills that will not only allow them to be resilient in the face of adversity, but also allow them to build other safe, stable, nurturing relationships and hopefully pass those along to their children someday. I have a question. The resiliency piece, I think, is really important. I've been in this field for over 40 years, and I've seen some children who have been exposed to things that are pretty damaging, could be illness, the death of a parent, etc. And somehow they seem to come through that tunnel and really be strong, stable kids. And of course, children who seem to have what the world might say are relatively minor distresses, and they fall apart and they have difficulties in so many areas. I understand and I totally agree that the nurturing relationships have a lot to do with resiliency. Do you think there's any genetic predisposition towards being resilient or being more vulnerable? This always gets that age old question. Is it nature versus nurture? <laughs> right. Right. And I think <laughs> Basically, the, yeah. I think what the science tells us is that it's not or it's and it's nature dancing with nurture. Right. So we have a sort of a biological program, a predisposition to be a certain way. But what we're learning more and more is that um, the environment plays a critical way in how that blueprint is read. And so the genes are what you inherit from your parents. And we used to think that that was a relatively fixed thing. So you got these genes, that's your lot, that's your destiny. There's not much we can do about it. And what we now know is that the genome is actually relatively plastic, much like the brain in the sense that the environment determines which of those genes get turned on and which of those get turned off. And so that's really a hopeful message, right? Because if you inherit, say, a gene that makes it very likely for you to be an alcoholic, but the environment never turns that gene on, Fantastic, right? So I think that epigenetics and neuroscience are two basic sciences that are allowing us to understand how the environment becomes biologically embedded and impacts life course trajectories. And so that's a great question. It really isn't nature versus nurture. It's literally a dance um, between the two. And that actually goes all the way up to the level of the relationships too. I'm sure you guys have talked in the past when you're talking about relationships that sometimes it's just a mismatch. <laughs> it's not really a matter that the caregiver's wrong or the, or the child's wrong. Wrong, but there's a mismatch in expectations, a mismatch in understanding what those behaviors are saying. Because, you know, behavior is always a language. It's always telling us something about what's going on in the child's brain. And so it's a dance. I often describe the question you mentioned as sort of a black box. So you've got, you know, experiences in childhood, whether it be good or bad. you got this proverbial black box. And then we have all these outcomes down the line, right? And so how do we peer inside that black box and understand how adversities are associated with bad outcomes and how nurturing relationships are associated with positive outcomes? And that's what's exciting for me is the biology is beginning to show us how adverse childhood experiences can lead to toxic stress, which can lead to literally changes at the molecular level, the cellular level and behaviors. But at the same token, those same biological processes are now allowing us to understand that having that one caregiver who gets you who understands you and is nurturing to you can buffer a whole lot of adversities. So this fits right into something our listeners would be very familiar with. And that is that a relationship allows you to navigate very difficult waters. Adversity is part of life. 
you're going to have missteps. You're going to have harm done. You're going to have pain experienced. But the good news around what Susan was talking about is the relationship is the reality through which adversity is turned into growth, into flourishing, into success in life. And so this fits with our message that Susan and I have been sharing with families for many years, that conflict actually is your friend. It opens the door to the child finding paths forward in that trusting, safe, secure, nurturing relationship. They can use that conflict to turn straw into gold again. Yeah. And we talk about an environment, but the reality is the living relationship opens all doors. The big long-term goal is to build distress tolerance. We're going to have distress. There are all kinds of distress. And the challenge is, can we help our kids when they're young, when they're middle school, even when they're going off to college, learn how to handle distress in a healthy, adaptive manner? And in my mind, it comes back to the safe, stable, nurturing relationships. And I want to delve into that just a little bit because it means more than it sounds. (laughs) What I mean by that is safe is not just free from violence, which is obviously really important. And it's not just meeting a child's biological needs, which is obviously important. You know, you don't, you don't really feel safe if you're not, if you're hungry, you know, you're not really safe. You don't have a place to sleep at night. Right. But safe also means trust. And that's really important because um, for kids to learn new adaptive skills, they need to trust the information they're getting is in their best interest. And so that's a fundamental thing that comes from the educational literature, this idea of epistemic trust. Does the child trust you? Right. That's a critical part of being safe. You're not really safe unless you the people around you, you trust. The second thing would be stable. So stable, we tend to think of as being sort of predictable over time. But it also means repair. Because like you mentioned, inevitably, there are going to be ruptures, there are going to be breaks, there's going to be dissynchrony, things that, that, that clunks, <laughs> the, the things don't go well, where parents say things they didn't wish they hadn't said, I want to take it back. And, and that's actually okay, so long as there's repair, then that builds that trust and builds that sense of safety. And then nurturing is not being permissive. And I think that's the problem is we tend to think about being a nurturing parent as everything's fine, everything's fine. That's not being nurturing. Nurturing is an optimistic growth mindset. The idea that, okay, we had some clunks along the way. Tomorrow we're going to do better. And I know you can do better. We're going to try this and setting some expectations. So I think if we have those safe, stable, nurturing relationships, they then in turn are going to provide kids with those positive experiences. So we often talk about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. There are in the literature now positive childhood experiences, and, and these are associated with the outcomes we're looking for. And so what do all these positive childhood experiences have in common? They are positive emotional connections. They are moments that build emotional connection, being understood. And so just like the ACEs can be biologically embedded, it's now clear that the positive childhood experiences can become biologically embedded. So how does that happen, right? So toxic stress helps us explain how the bad stuff happens. How's the good stuff happen? Well, there's this thing called biobehavioral synchrony. And that's a big word, (laughs) right? But what it basically means is, and we've all experienced this as parents, those magical moments where you're understood and they understand you and you're on this literally on the same wavelength, something really cool happens at a biological level. Literally, the brain waves, the hormones, your autonomic nervous system, they go in sync. They literally go in sync. And so that's what this idea of biobehavioral synchrony that literally is that you're cycling in and out of synchrony with people all the time. But what we've learned is that it's not so much always being in sync that is associated with positive outcomes. It's the ability to repair. And so one example, if you want to see a visceral example of this biobehavioral synchrony, 
you can go look at the Tronic still-faced experiment. So there's a website you can go to, right? Tronic, and it's a still-faced experiment. And let me say up front, it's a little distressing, right? I don't want to upset people. And it's a little contrived, right? In the sense that it's an elaboratory experiment where they have about a one-year-old that's interacting with a parent. And the first phase for two minutes is what I think of as relating. They're basically playing. They're doing that dyadic dance back and forth. The mom is smiling. The kid's cooing. They're talking back and forth. You can literally feel the synchrony, right? And then they tell the mom to turn away and to come back and to have a still face for two minutes. And I'm telling you, it is gut-wrenching, right? I mean, you can tell the child is literally becoming dysregulated at the fact that they cannot be in synchrony with the parents. I mean, some kids don't even make it two minutes, but if they do make it two minutes, then they have mom turn away and come back. And then she begins to re-engage and immediately the child gets calm. The stress begins to go away. And so for a long time, we were looking at the stress, but the magic in that is the interactive repair that comes at the end. Right. And so that is the key part is there's three phases. There's relating, then there's rupture, and then there's repair. And you can literally see these phases by watching the the video. Now, in real life, those cycles don't happen on the order of minutes. (laughs) They happen in order of seconds, hundreds an hour, right? Where we're in sync with each other. And then for whatever reason, the caregiver needs to go to the restroom or needs to attend to a sibling or where the phone rings. And so that's okay. Those ruptures aren't the end of the world so long as there is a repair. There's a coming back. I got you. And the thought is that that ability to repair, they call it the latency to repair. The shorter that is, the better the child builds distress tolerance, right? Because you can literally see that there. Well, I know I'm distressed now. This feels uncomfortable, but I've been here before. I know the caregiver is going to turn around and interact with me again. That's what's building the distress tolerance over time. And so that's the good message, I think, is that you don't have to be perfect. You know, this idea of good enough parenting, right? (laughs) You don't have to be perfect, but good enough means I'm going to turn around and I'm going to repair. I may not be perfect, but in a way, that's actually modeling the skills we want our kids to have someday, to apologize, to say, I'm sorry, to say, I'm going to do better the next time. That's modeling those relational skills that we want them to use someday. That's so powerful. You think about the things we've talked about, Susan, on Parent Talk, toilet training or toilet mastery. It's exactly what was in my mind. <laughs> uh, getting to sleep through the night. And we use the word nurturing and we talk about what we mean by nurturing. And we say exactly what you say, Andy, which is, we're not talking about just anything goes. We talk about guidance, but it's really relationship. We want the parent relating to the child. And if you turn it over to the child to solve the problem, then there's that rupture and repair event happening. They're struggling with getting mastery of toileting. The parent gives them the space to struggle with that. They find a path forward. That's the repair. And then yeah. on the other side of it, I mean, Susan, you've seen it thousands of times, the explosion of confidence The power that comes out of that rupture and repair sequence is just incredible. I'm so glad you brought up this nurturing parenting that it's not anything goes, because I think that parents are really quite confused about gentle parenting, nurturing parenting, whatever little idiom you want to use to describe parents who are in a relationship with a child. It doesn't mean that they never discipline their child. And we talk a great deal, Andy, about the difference between discipline and punishment, because we're not big believers in punishment, but Mm -hmm. we are huge believers in discipline. And And when Arthur says we allow the child to solve their own conflict, that, of course, is with the parental support. The parent is there guiding that child, supporting that child, helping that child 
figure out the solution to their own conflict, but then it becomes the child's solution. And then, of course, there's that flourishing, that burst of confidence, that feeling like, wow, I did it. And knowing that even if they fail or they have a few steps backwards, they're not falling through the net because mom or dad or whatever the caregiver is, is there to support them and catch them and help them. Yeah, I think that's really important that the nurturing doesn't mean permissive. And I think that's what people sometimes hear. I think they do. Yeah. Nurturing means also structure, expectations, and when we fail, an optimistic growth mindset that we can do better the next time. We're going to help you. And I know you can. Right. And so I, th- I think it's really important for parents. to Remember, the kids will see themselves the way the parent sees them. Right. And so if the parents constantly sending them signals that you can't do this. You can't do this. Well, then the kid believes they can't do it. Right. But you can do this. We'll do it better next time. And then noting that growth, little baby steps in the right direction is just so, so, so powerful. I'm not sure what the opposite of shame is. But when it doesn't go well, the message that delivered is shame. Shame's a major topic in itself. But what we're talking about is biosynchrony. In other words, the relationship working, helping the person grow. You know, there's no simple word that's the opposite of shame. It's almost everything that's good about being human comes to life. I would say joy. And pride. Yeah. Just feeling like this inner sense of I can do it. And take something like potty training. We talk about it as mastery because we help guide the child to be in charge of their own body. And I will tell you, the message you want to give your child is, you can do this. Yeah, it's hard yeah. and it was easier on your in your diapers, but we know you can do it. Oh, well, here's an accident. I see your pants are wet. It's not a punishment. There's a logical consequence when your pants are wet. And at the end, there is this incredible sense of pride and joy. There is joy in that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I think the, the message for parents, like you've been saying, is, is that there really isn't such a thing as a perfect parenting. Right. I think it's all about the occasional inevitable ruptures. And now, obviously, if we're talking about severe adversity and toxic stress, that's unmitigated. Well, that, that can lead to bad outcomes. And it's not always about being like the hover parent that's always engaged and always in sync and never lets their kid experience any adversity. That's not right either. Right. It's really about the interactive repair, right? And building distress tolerance and building that sense of mastery and accomplishment and empowerment and a growth mindset. I mean, it's just amazing to us, Andy, to have a conversation with you where our sort of behavioral approaches to parenting are revealed to have very deep biological roots. Absolutely. I think that's always the thing. You know, I'm really interested when we have disparate fields come together in a confluence. I think there's a lot of power in that. And so absolutely, I think what psychologists for a long time have told us, what happens in childhood doesn't stay in childhood, (laughs) you know, and we're now now beginning to understand why both the good and the bad, it can influence outcomes down the line. But I think the, the real take home message is that as the child grows, slowly increasing that latency repair, which is just a natural part of life. You know, a child's in school, something bad happens. I'll have a repair at the end of the day. That latency until repair builds distress tolerance and leads us to a whole nother topic, which is this idea of affect regulation. And so we could probably talk another hour about that. But I think from my perspective, affect regulation is the starting point for learning, right? I mean, if you talk to kindergarten teachers, they'll tell you, I can teach any kid to read if you can teach them to handle their emotions and sit in a chair for a day, <laughs> you know? And so I think that affect regulation is critical. And, and basically that's what we're talking about when we have a safe, stable, nurturing relationship. We're modeling, we're teaching, we're um, giving opportunities to practice, and we're positively reinforcing the ability to handle those strong emotions. I read somewhere that affect is not like what we think of as happy, sad, and different and anger and different emotions. It's your sense of whether the world 
is a threat or open for business, something you can trust. An affect is the body's stance in any moment. Right now, my affect's feeling like things are pretty safe talking to Andy and Susan. If I was in a car, my affect would turn on the alarm system a little higher. And if I was in an accident, it would go all the way to full alarm. I don't know if that's your sense of affect also, but this whole conversation about the power of safe, stable, nurturing relationships allows for the affect to move towards trust. Yes. And calmness and, and therefore learning. Yes. You can't learn if you're in a state of danger. Yeah, I think the way, I mean, again, as, as a neuroscientist, I sort of see the brain is being set up all about predictions. Just picture that that little toddler who like knows they're gonna get yelled at by going towards electric outlets. They're <laughs> doing it and watching and waiting for you to say something, right? <laughs> you know, it's all about prediction. If I do this, what's gonna happen? If I do this, what's gonna happen? And and there is joy and empowerment for kids to know what's gonna happen, which is why the structure and routine is so incredibly important. But yes, I think our emotions are trying to give us a little look into the future, what's going to happen next. Are we in a position where something good could happen? Are we in a position where something bad could happen? And if we're in that context of a safe, stable, nurturing relationship, then we're getting out of our survival brain. <laughs> we're getting out of our flight and flight mode. We're getting out of what's the bad thing that's going to happen next. And we're much more into the, oh, there's an opportunity for growth here. I can master something. I can learn something. And that in turn will also be a really good feeling that I've been able to accomplish this. So there's a guy, Bruce Perry, who's a psychiatrist who talks a lot about trauma and and he talks about a sort of a sequence of engagement. He talks about regulating, relating, and then reasoning. And I think that that is one way to sort of approach it, that if we all want to get to reason, right? So we all want to be able to help. And reason's more just learning, using the thinking and learning brain to build skills and build capacities. We always want to get there. We want to get our kids to the point where they can learn something. I can teach you a better way to doing this and that sort of thing. But you're not going to get there unless as a caregiver, we're first regulated because <laughs> you're never going to regulate a child by being dysregulated yourself, right? We have to regulate ourselves, right? And then we need to have that relationship. We need to have that interaction, that synchrony, which will then turn off the child stress response and build trust. So now we're in an environment where we can learn something. So I really think that's a powerful, simple nugget, regulate, relate, and then reason. Because I know all parents want to teach. Discipline means to teach. It doesn't mean to punish, it means to teach. And so we all want to teach. But before we can teach, we have to make sure that we're regulated. The child then doesn't have a stress response. And then we can actually begin relating and having synchrony, building trust and getting to the point where they're going to take in some new information and try a different way. You know, this prompts a question about the anxiety that parents have about raising their children. It seems to me that these young parents or the parents of very young children, they're not always young are so focused on how much sleep should they get? What should be my schedule? What if my breast milk isn't coming in? It goes on and on and on. And what I'm seeing is that you've talked about joy. I see a lack of joy in these young parents when they're with their children. And I'm wondering, is that what you're talking about? I don't feel that these parents are very well, they're a little dysregulated. Absolutely. There's no question. I think that that is one of the, the greatest joys of being a pediatrician is being able to bring joy back to the relationship. So when they come in and they're young and being able to say your child's doing great, they're gaining weight. And look, look at that social smile. They're smiling at you. There's a relationship now, you know, they're, they're paying attention to you. And I actually use the social smile to talk about discipline, to say that the word discipline means to teach doesn't mean to punish. And so at six weeks, if the baby's smiling and you're smiling back, that's discipline. You're telling them you can get attention just by smiling. And now we got this positive dance going on. And so, yeah, I think that uh, we can definitely bring more joy into it. And, and basically what we're telling parents is 
There is no perfect parenting. You know, all the, you gotta do it this way. You gotta do it that way. All you really gotta do, obviously, is be safe, which means you're meeting your baby's biological needs. You're feeding them. You're keeping them safe, right? And, and you're building trust by responding in a predictable manner. Stable, which means that we're going to be predictable, but when things aren't right, we're going to circle around and we're going to repair. And then nurturing in that we are going to have to set some limits at some point. <laughs> I can't feeding through the middle of the night and when you're eight months old, we're going to have to talk about that. <laughs> you know, <And> so, <laughs> so, so the, the point is that safe, stable and nurturing, I think, is a framework that can hopefully get through all of that chatter and sort of get at what is a good enough parenting. Good enough parenting is safe, stable, nurturing. And it's really about that relationship. And I think we have an opportunity to build that relationship over time. So you can see how if moms are having some postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression and that dance, even at six weeks, gets thrown off because the child's smiling and trying to get attention, but you're not in synchrony. You can see how the dance can get disrupted very very early on. So that's not throwing moms under the bus and not saying that if moms depress the kids hose, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying though is that we have an opportunity very early on to promote the relationship above everything else. The relationship is the foundation for everything. You really provide such a powerful understanding of many things that we talk about on this program. Listeners to Parent Talk will be very familiar with the fact that we share that same message, the word discipline comes from disciple or teach, not punishment. So what do we say, Susan? You've taught us all this. The first thing the parent does when they see a rule broken is they observe what the child did. That helps the parent regulate. Instead of hauling off and screaming at the child, when they make that neutral statement, they calm down. And then the child's like, why aren't you yelling at me? They catch their attention. Now synchrony begins to develop because they're interested. And then you ask the child, why did you do it? Now you're really building synchrony because the parent's saying, I want to hear from you what's going on here. And then we'll work together to find a better solution. So you've pulled back the curtain to something we've been talking about for a long time and said, there's actual neuroscience behind this. And I think we need to start not to go back to the title of my book, but think developmentally. <laughs> this doesn't happen overnight. This is a developmental process. And I think particularly with affect regulation and this ability to handle strong emotions, it's critical to understand that that is a moving target across development. So early on, affect regulation is provided for the child by the caregiver. The caregiver is the emotional container to say, yes, you're having a strong emotion. You're okay to have that strong emotion. I'm going to help you learn how to handle it. So initially it's provided for the child. And then through a lot of child development, it's provided with the child, that co-regulation, that biobehavioral synchrony. How can we get back on the same page? We're going to have breaches, but then we're going to come back to repair. And then hopefully, ideally, then it's provided by the child, right? So hope the child learns some self-regulation and says, I've been here before. And so for the older kids, I love tapping into, like you said, joy and their passion. So I feel like when I see an older child, if they have something that brings them joy, I can teach them how to regulate strong emotions. Because I can remind them that when their sister's making them crazy, you can yell and scream and get in trouble again, or you can stop, walk away and go play with Legos and now you're happy. And then they get in trouble. So it's perfect, right? And so kids love that, that <laughs> whole idea that I can do this, right? I know this emotion and I know this distress and I know it's going to pass and I know I can control it by doing the things that bring me joy. And so I think that that's an important thing to remember is that if affect regulation is the starting point for us being able to teach kids adaptive skills, how to handle their distress. It has to start by interventions with the caregivers because they are doing it for the child initially. Then it's about building those opportunities for synchrony, which are those all those positive child experiences, you know, developmentally appropriate play, shared reading. We are literally building the synchrony together. So then we're building it with the child. And then hopefully 
through formalized social emotional learning, we can actually uh, help the child have affect regulation by themselves, self-regulation. And you've very succinctly put forth the agenda for all our parent talk episodes. That's exactly what we're aiming for, just that sequence. And this may be a good place to start to wrap up. First of all, by expressing our thanks to really a great pleasure having you, Dr. Gardner, on Parent Talk. I love the chance to really get to the foundation of parenting, the relationship. We learned a lot together. I hope we continue to learn together on these topics. I think the walkaway tip for parents is that the relationship is the foundation for a child thriving. Whatever the genetics they face are, the ability to have a safe, secure, nurturing relationship opens the door to a flourishing, happy adult. And for all our listeners who'd like to learn more about what we talked about today, Dr. Garner's book is available on Amazon, and it's called Thinking Developmentally, Nurturing Wellness in Childhood to Promote Lifelong Health. And it's just the sort of thing we were talking about today with a lot of depth, a lot of reference. I think everyone who listens to our podcast would enjoy digging into this. So thank you for joining us today, and I look forward to further conversations. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, Arthur. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to the Parent Talk Podcast. You can find back episodes and send us your parenting questions at parenttalkpodcast.com. And don't forget to visit our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, at naturepedic.com.